This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. So let's talk about the news today from Moderna. Uh, The next guest really needs no introduction, and yet let's go through it. Dr. William Hazeltine, his bio reminds us that he has educated a generation of doctors at Harvard, uh, helped design the strategy for the first treatment for HIV-AIDS. He also founded more than a dozen biotech companies, including Human Genome Sciences, and serves on many advisory boards. Welcome, uh, Dr. Hazeltine. It's great to have you here with us. He's chairman and president of Access Health International. It's a nonprofit think tank. It's really on a mission to improve access to high quality and affordable health care for everyone, uh, everywhere. And he joins us on the phone in New York City. Uh, Dr. Hazeltine, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. The news today from Moderna, how do you see it? How do you read it? Uh, I see it as uh, a small step forward and a lot of hype. Interesting. Tell us more. Yeah, explain why. Well, there are eight patients that they reported. The uh, data is not public. We can't evaluate it. We don't know what actually happened. And there are other reports of published uh, papers uh, by scientists around the world who've uh, done at least what they've done and perhaps more. So that's why I say it's a little bit of news and a lot of hype. And so when you look at that, is this just people really, the the market in particular, and maybe us just as human beings looking and grabbing on to to some sliver of hope here, Dr. Hazeltine? You know, hope has been the handmaiden of scoundrels for generations. It's what allows us to be conned. We need hope, but hope is also dangerous. We have to be careful yeah. uh, with it. I'm not saying that that vaccine won't work. I'm just saying it's a very slender thread to uh, move a market. Well, having uh, said, you know, there's an, uh, yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. Well, you know what? Let me just, because we want to continue this line of thought. We did, though, catch up our, our Bloomberg News team. Uh, on the TV side, caught up with the Moderna CEO, Stefan Bonsell, um, and talked about phase three, the trial specifically that they expect by July. Let's just listen to a snippet of that interview. We are finalizing the protocol for the phase three, which is the last clinical study before approval, which we are hoping to start in July of this year. Uh, the study will be uh, several thousand healthy subjects across many countries. We are finalizing the protocol as we speak with the FDA, and we are hoping that people can start in July as is our plan. So phase three, as we know, and you certainly know, Dr. Hazeltine, is an important you know, process, but, but it, it reminds us that there's still a lot to be known, right? There's a lot to be known. No, as far as we know, there's been no real uh, challenge in a human being. And I can say that I've been reviewing the uh, literature of uh, vaccine efforts over many years, Uh, first with SARS, then with MERS uh, and other coronaviruses. This is not a simple problem. Um, 
there are a number of different attempts that have been made. Uh, there are results that look at least as good as these results uh, from two other laboratories. Uh, and so it's it's very premature. It doesn't mean it's not going to work. I don't want right. to say that I have any information about whether it's going to work or not. All I can say is the kinds of signals they're getting are expected at this stage. They don't necessarily mean that the vaccine will protect anybody. Or if they do protect it, how long they will protect them. There's a lot of questions that remain to be done. And eight people is a far too small study yeah. to know whether it's even safe. So, you know, I think making a big announcement that moves a market on a first in human study for eight people is an extraordinary event in biomedical science. It just doesn't happen. Uh, the fact that this has happened uh, puts, uh, I think we all understand why, we're all desperate to see an end to this uh, disease. We have friends, we have uh, children and grandchildren we're deeply worried about. Uh, we're all upset about the economy and the way this has changed our lives, and we are hoping for an end. But hope is not the answer. Really hard data is the answer to what's, uh, what we need, and we haven't seen that yet. Let's get right back to our conversation with Dr. William Hazeltine, Chair, President of Access Health International, legendary uh, in the medical field. And Dr. Hazeltine, I wanted to, to take you back, if we could, to some time that you spent last year uh, in China and in Wuhan specifically. And I wonder what you make of where the outbreak is there and what we should be taking in terms of lessons here. Uh, Wuhan is a uh, very nice city. It's a uh, garden city in a way. Uh, it's a high-tech city, uh, and it's a university town. It's a uh, very interesting city. Um, if you look at the history, and I have friends there, and I have uh, followed it pretty closely, Wuhan is now pretty much back, not to normal, but it is certainly way ahead of uh, where we are and that's because they took very, very vigorous methods to shut down the infection. It worked. If you look at the total number of cases in China, there are sporadic cases here and there, particularly up by the Russian border. But basically, the, the entire country, for example, Beijing, hasn't had a uh, new infection for 30 days. Mm. It is quite remarkable what you can do with public health measures without a vaccine or without a drug. Right. And, you know, the Chinese government, I would guess, has certainly been helpful in making it possible for people to stay home, um, also requiring people to stay home. Um, how do you see the U.S. approach? I mean, it's, it's, there's so much pressure. You see it, the protests on various governors in certain states to reopen. Um, I feel like it's a delicate balance. What is the balance, that, how you see it, between balancing, making sure people stay safe? But, you know, we've got an economy that's, that's really a mess right now. It's you've got you've, you've summarized it very nicely. If I look at the data in the U.S. Uh, and I look at most cities, what I see is what I would have expected, that we climbed up to the top of what we hoped was a mountain. But it turned out it was a plateau. And the end of that plateau is not yet in sight. And that's because we haven't taken the measures in this country to restrict people to people transmission that's necessary. We've reduced it. So that in many places we're at a plateau. But if you look around the world, 
and you look at the countries that have been really effective in having a sharp rise and a sharp fall, they've been very restrictive. If you look at the countries like the United States and Great Britain, you find that we have just as many infections on a daily basis today as we did when we closed the place up. That's sort of surprising. And it suggests that if we open up again and we're careless about how we open up, we'll have another rise. And if people think that warm weather is going to save them, they should look at the data from India, where it's really warm right now. It's pre-monsoon. I've been there. It is hot as Hades there. And it's damp. It's miserable. And that that, uh, infection is just skyrocketing right through the roof. It's in an exponential phase right now. And that is in really warm weather. So warm weather isn't going to save anybody. What will save us is being careful of who we meet. Doesn't mean we have to keep the economy closed, but it means that as long as there's a high level of infection in your community, you have to be extremely careful. The only safe assumption is that everybody you meet is infected and that you, even if you've had this disease, can be reinfected. That is the only safe assumption. So is it goes back to taste, uh, testing and tracing? I mean, do we, do we need to wake up every day and say, okay, these are the hot spots in our local communities. So this is either where we don't want to go or this is where people need to be quarantined. Like, how do we need to do it? And unfortunately, we only have about a minute left. Okay. We, you've only used two words, test, trace, and I would ask, and then what? Hmm. What is isolation and very strict isolation? Voluntary, hopefully, and if that doesn't work, involuntary. Test, trace, and isolate those that are infected is the only sure way. As long as the virus is in your community and is spreading, I want some people to listen to this to remember one thing. It took one person in China to infect the world. One person. It'll take one person in your city to reinfect the whole city. And it will take one person in your household to reinfect your entire household. We must be careful. Yes, open. Open when the virus levels are low and and assume everybody you meet is potentially infected. All right. Well, um, words of caution, certainly, and a good warning on a day when there seems to be a lot of ebullience, to say the least, uh, certainly from a market perspective. Dr. William Hazeltine, he knows what he's talking about, chair and president of Access Health International, a long history of fighting disease. We really appreciate your time here on a Monday. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. You know, it's interesting talking to Bill uh, Hazeltine, Dr. Bill Hazeltine, uh, Carol, you know, just about the information, how you read it, you know, what's working, what's not working. All of us are just grasping for anything that we can get our hands on, you know, some measure of hope. And that makes it a lot trickier to figure out, like, who's telling the truth, who's not, what's coming over the Internet. Let's get into that story. It's a fascinating piece written by Joshua Brustein. He's a tech writer for Bloomberg Business Week. It's in the magazine this week online and at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal today. He joins us on the phone from New York City. Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, he's on a remote line in Brooklyn. So, J-Dub, set this up for us because this is a really important story. 
So, yeah. uh, you know, we, we've been talking just a, a lot about how, um, you know, information, how we process information in general. And, you know, Josh kind of raised his hand about this group in, at the State Department called, uh, that we'll, we'll shorthand as GEC, and he'll tell us a, more about them in a second. Um, and the moment he started telling us about them, we just said, you need to start writing this story. Because what it really shows is, um, you know, the U.S. is, you know, we've, we've been talking about disinformation for, for a couple of years now. But even within the U.S. government, there's actually some people who know about that more than others. Um, Josh, what, what's the backstory of GEC? So GEC, or the Global Engagement Center, is an office within the U.S. State Department. And I had actually been looking at it uh, far before the current um, COVID pandemic when um, there were actually questions about recruitment of um, Islamic groups using online channels for recruitment. That was the GEC's original charge. Um, and then it expanded to deal with Russian disinformation um, during the 2016 election um, and kind of shifted away from online recruitment and towards state-sponsored attempts to um, basically poison the online discourse around various things. And obviously the coronavirus has made this just more urgent than it's ever seemed before. So can I just say, this is one of those stories you're like, well, wait a minute. You've got this agency within the government that is looking into basically debunking conspiracy theories. And yet, as you write, Josh, in one of your, Joshua, in one of your, in your story, hanging over all of this is the U.S. government's biggest obstacle to eliminating misinformation. Gabrielle, which is the woman who runs this, who runs GEC, you write her boss's 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 tendency to amplify the sorts of conspiracy theories that GEC was created to contain. You're talking about President Trump. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the GEC has really been bedeviled by President Trump from the time he took office in different ways, interestingly. At first, when it was just trying to build up its staff right at the beginning of his administration, he um, and his administration had really no interest in having a part of the U.S. State Department that was focused on Russian disinformation given the 2016 election and his um, real opposition to looking closer into that operation. Uh, then in more recent years, uh, the administration has become more interested in, uh, in the GEC. It's increased its, um, it's increased its budget significantly. And now, especially during coronavirus, you have the situation where this is a small agency trying to say the Chinese government is, um, backing these uh, misinformation campaigns related to COVID. The Russian government is backing misinformation campaigns related to COVID. But a lot of the information is things that you have heard from President Trump sometimes. Um, and that yeah. makes it difficult to uh, really to, to speak with a um, right to speak confidently on that. So, Joshua, the part of the thing that I think we, we were sort of captivated by in the story is like the, the agency kind of does things both ways. It's both de defensive and sort of offensive. How do they play both sides like that? Sure. So the defensive aspect is really the identification um, and exposure of foreign disinformation campaigns. And that's really the thing that they focused on most during the um, during the coronavirus pandemic, 
you've seen the agency, you know, come out and say Russia is doing this or China is doing that. Interestingly, um, some other disinformation experts have questioned some of these conclusions. The offensive um, aspect of this, which it really is not as open about right now, is having some sort of counter-programming out there, usually um, targeted at audiences abroad, to uh, put out messages that would undermine the sort of messaging coming from other states. So where does this go? I mean, like, how worried should we be about all of this at a time where we're, I mean, this this is not a, an academic exercise in, in many ways because people are making real life decisions based on what they read on the internet in, in some ways. After doing this reporting, Joshua, like, what's your takeaway? Well, the first thing is, I think there's pretty much consensus amongst anyone paying attention that there's a real danger to uh, manipulation of online platforms to spread lies and confusion, and that it could, yeah, it could lead to people, you know, either doing things that will personally hurt themselves or not acting in ways that can help us collectively deal with the pro- uh, with the problem. And the second point is that I think the experience of the Global Engagement Center shows just how tricky it is mm. for a government to respond to this. Anything yeah. that any administration does is inherently political. And when you have such polarized times, having the Trump administration say something is uh, it's coming from a particular place. And given how people generally react to things based on where they come from, it has been uh, it's fraught to have uh, someone trying to act in what would seem to be a neutral way. Yeah, well, it's really a uh, it's it's quite a it's quite a story, and we're really happy uh, you brought it to us. Joshua Brustein is tech writer for Bloomberg Business Week, joining us on the phone from New York City. Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, he joined us from Brooklyn, and I have to say, I mean, this takes us back to the election. We've got another election yes. coming up. We're talking with Sheryl Sandberg later. Yeah. Um, so you do wonder what the private sector is doing around this as well as the government, because as Joshua very rightly points out, it gets trickier uh, when the government's involved. this. I have to say, we just finished watching Homeland. And oh, so did you? Oh, I, right? All of this, yeah, is uh, It all comes together, right? And you yeah. think, okay, wait a minute. This is just, a, you know, I'm watching a series or something. Then you read these kinds of stories and you're like, oh, wait a minute. This you're like, happens wait in a second. Is this, is this Gabrielle? or Carrie. Yeah, exactly. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Let's catch up with Andy Brown. He is editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy, joining me on the phone from New Hampshire. He's got a great column on the Bloomberg today. Check it out. It's called, very simply, U.S.-China Relations Hang by Two Threads. And those threads feeling increasingly gossamer and in in many ways so much rhetoric uh flying back and forth tell us what you make of this because it's trade and virus right i mean are those the two threads uh yep well uh one of those is trade that's for sure i mean that's the most important one this phase one trade deal. This is the most important achievement of the Trump administration vis-a-vis China. I mean, it's what it's 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 pretty much the only accomplishment, the signal accomplishment from, you know, all the huffing and puffing and, and standing up to China. And, you know, right now it's it's up in the air. So, you know, Trump tells Fox Business last week, 
maybe we should just cut off the relationship altogether, the whole, yeah. the whole thing, just dump the relationship with, with China. And, you know, it's not the first time we've heard this kind of rhetoric from him last year. You, you, you remember he told all American companies to exit China. Um, but, you know, increasingly markets seem to believe that he, he, could, he could be serious. Yeah. And why? I mean, what? And we talked a little bit about this last week, but remind us, like, why this timing, do you think? And, and what is what's underneath this from the U.S. administration's perspective? Well, I, look, I mean, Trump, Trump has always had a very uh, idiosyncratic um, view, uh, understanding of trade economics, right? Yes. I mean, so, you know, he believes essentially that uh, every trade deal the U.S. has ever, has ever entered into has, you know, has, has been, you know, bad for America. But America's got a raw deal, right? And, um, you know, everybody else has, has, has gained at America's exp- expense. So he, he doesn't like trade generally. He, he, he believes that trade deficits, um, you know, by definition mean that the U.S. is getting a raw deal. It's sort of yeah. money that is coming out of your pocket when, of course, uh, by and large, trade deficits in the U.S. are an indication that the U.S. economy is healthy and doing well. And, you know, the only time America didn't have a trade deficit was was during the Great Depression where it disappeared altogether. So, you know, he, he, he's, he's always taken a grim view on trade. But, you know, this this seems to be part of the whole bashing China to deflect attention and deflect blame from his mishandling at a federal level of, of COVID-19. Yeah. And so you, I was being a, li- a little bit glib about the, the virus, but the the other one that you point out is basically the, the threat is that the connectivity really between these two leaders, between President Xi and President Trump. Help me understand that. Yeah, well, it's always been a bit of a fig leaf. So right from the beginning, um, the White House has been very careful to separate the personal relationship that uh, Donald Trump allegedly has with Xi Jinping to try to separate that from all of the other bad things that are happening in the relationship. So, you know, this was supposed to be the thing that holds it all together and prevents a total unraveling. And, you know, so hence we would hear him say things like, my good friend, yeah. Xi Jinping. And, and Xi Jinping very rarely reciprocated this sort of thing. Chinese leaders don't go in for personal friendships. I mean, they go in for national interests, and that's it. Um, they're not big on sort of the, the like, the bro-ness, right? They're, they're, they're not uh, – that's not sort of their jam. They don't. They don't do they don't do bromance. They don't do bromance <laughs> domestically, and they sh- they sh- certainly don't do it in, in, internationally. Ne- nevertheless, there's there's been there's been this kind of pretense that you know these two get along pretty well, and you know, and last week he says I don't want I don't want I don't want to talk to him either, right? So yeah. you know, it, it it's just an it's it's kind of more symbolic of what really does appear to be a thoroughgoing unraveling of the entire relationship across its breadth. I mean, technology, exchanges, trade, talent, um, and now, of course, threatening to, you know, to uh, threatening to cut off the the China from from uh, from U.S. finance. Right. Um, It's right across the board. 
Well, and it's interesting too because you're seeing this divergence, you know. It, it, and and again, you're you're exactly right, and it's such a nice nuance to separate sort of the business from from the personal. But you know, even what seem to be these personal slash professional views of something like the WHO, you know, where you have the president of the United States saying, "I'm done with them. I may cut off all their funding," and President Xi, you know, as recently as today, being like, "We're going to fund this. Like, we're all in." I mean that. The, it feels like the virus has exacerbated some things here, right? Yeah, right. Well, that, that when, when President Xi stands up and says, you know, uh, if we get a vaccine in China, we're going to turn right. it into a public good and supply it to the whole world. And oh, and by the way, we're going to lob in another $2 billion to the, to the WHO, which is a huge amount. I mean, comparative to what they've been, they've been putting in. I mean, it's 40 million bucks a year. Right now, um, the U.S. is putting in 500 million. So, so clearly, you know, there's the, a the two-pronged effort here. One is to deflect global criticism from China's yeah. early mismanagement of the virus, but also it's a sort of a one-upmanship on, yes. on Trump, right, who's, who's, who's defunding the WHO in the middle of a global pandemic. It's amazing. All right. Always good to catch up with you. Always feel smarter after I talk to you. Uh, Andy Brown, editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy, joining me on the phone from New Hampshire. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it's time for the drive to the close. George Young with me, partner and portfolio manager for Villary Funds, on the phone from New Orleans. And, you know, when Carol's off the show for a little while, we just go southern. We go full southern, George Young. Tell me what's going on uh, down in the Big Easy. Well, everything's going pretty well here. I got to thank you for having me on such a wonderful day because you could have had me here on March 23rd. I think the tone might have been a little different. Your audience's mood might have been a little different. So thank you for that. A little different uh, for sure. Yeah. So what is it like? I mean, I want to talk stocks and I want to talk the market, but but do tell me what what's it like on the ground there? Uh, things are pretty good. I mean, obviously, being in the southeast, we've got beautiful weather right now. And I know in the northeast, you didn't have that until recently. So uh, we've had a great spring, um, obviously marred by uh, COVID-19. That's been tough on all of us here around the world, actually. But um, I think we've seen some recovery here. And possibly it's because we took our hit a little bit earlier, Yeah. Uh, possibly because of Mardi Gras, a close contact there, unfortunately. Obviously, everybody knows about Mardi Gras scene. But in that case, uh, we took our hit early, and things are looking a lot better here. So I tend to be optimistic and uh, as a rule, and I tend to be optimistic about where we're going with this in a lot of different ways. So things are good here, and I uh, hope they're getting a lot better nationally and internationally. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think you'd agree that, you know, New York City and, and its environs where I am uh, talking to you from, I'm just north of the city right now. And, uh, you know, obviously we were there on the on the front end as well. And it is interesting to sort of watch this uh, play out and, and see different investors and business people talk about it in, in different parts of the country. And we're always uh, quick, to, quick to ask our folks, especially who are outside of the Northeast, what, what's going on. So you look at a market like today's, George, with a huge amount of enthusiasm, as you alluded to, you know, biggest jumps in over a month, uh, highest levels since early March. And, you know, that, that March period, as you said, was, 
was bleak to say the least. Uh, how much do you worry that maybe this is too optimistic? Well, the market does seem like it may have gotten ahead of itself. We've had such a major move from 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 the lows. It's just been incredible. Yeah. Um, specifically, uh, the move has been approximately up uh, 20%, 25%, depending on which index you want to measure. We tend to be more small, mid-cap oriented, so mm-hmm. the recovery has been a lot more severe. It's been about 30% for the Russell 2000, for instance. Um, that's a hell of a move upward, and uh, at some point, the market faces some sort of equilibrium, so arguably a little bit uh, overbought at the moment. Uh, however, there are still a number of stocks uh, that still are being punished. And it's somewhat interesting because uh, a month or two ago, uh, market lows, we thought there were opportunities to buy, and we were fortunate enough to have cash for our clients. Yeah. And we really tried to look into three different categories. There were the aggressive categories, cruises and casinos, for instance, because you think, who's ever going to go back in a casino? Who's ever going to go on a cruise again? However, that was certainly priced into the stocks. Then we thought, gee, it might make sense to move to something a little more moderate, such as transportation or medical. Uh, if if somebody needs to move goods from one place to another, they're going to use a trucker, for instance. If somebody needs to have a knee replacement, they don't have to get it done today, but in due course, they do need to have that knee replaced. Uh, and, and, and then you could look at the maybe more conservative or obvious stocks, such as utilities or maybe tech. Everybody in the world is using Zoom. Everybody in right. the world is using Amazon. That's a little obvious. Again, that's price in the stock, and that makes that stock a little more expensive. So we use the middle ground. We bought J.B. Hunt, which is a transportation company, the trucker, one of the most efficient out there. Uh, When it comes to intermodal, they've got about a 35% market share. And we chose Stryker, uh, which a lot of orthopedic surgeons out there would know, or those that have had knee or shoulder um, uh, replacements would understand that's the best in business. So we went with the middle ground, which made sense, and we were rewarded. so uh, things look pretty good at this moment, um, but it depends on the consumer. And I think maybe one thing that, that listeners need to take away is that patience is important, both in avoiding contact uh, with the virus. Uh, you also need patience for investing, not coincidentally. Um, if you look at the numbers, over the past 15 years, markets returned about 9%. And if an investor misses the 20 best days, that return drops to 1%. Wow. So don't, don't get whipsawed. Don't yeah. get in and get out. And behavioral psychologists uh, will tell you investors tend to be very skittish. And on days like today, you think, oh, everything's great. Let's keep buying. Yeah. A week ago when we had a bad day, you might have thought the world's falling apart. Don't do any buying ever again. Right. Somewhere in between those ways, uh, those approaches is the way to do it. But you need to have patience as an investor. So uh, tell me just a, a little bit more about uh, each of those names, uh, J.B. Hunt and, and Stryker, because, you know, obviously they're not uh, – other folks are, are in that business as well. W- what did you see in those particular names? Well, what we saw is that with Stryker, for instance, let's go back to the hip and the knee replacements, yeah. uh, the, the, the shoulder replacements. Those are delayed surgeries. You don't want to – it's not elective surgery where you would go in to have a dermatological procedure, for instance. Uh, This is something that really needs to be done. It just doesn't need to be done today. But at some point, you need to get that done. Stryker, we think, is the best in the business. Uh, They've been in each of those businesses I named for over 50 years. So it's the sort of thing that they uh, have the expertise, they understand how it works, and uh, they have a good sales group. They've got a good management group that's been in charge for some time. So that's what we try to do is once we find a theme, we try to see 
what's going to work best with that theme in terms of management. We also look at debt. We want a company mm-hmm. that doesn't have too much debt because that's the way that uh, you can get in trouble nowadays. If you don't have staying power, um, you're, you're, you're not going to be able to withstand the bad markets. So before I let you go, talk to me uh, just for 30, 45 seconds about First Hawaiian because I think that's another name you like. Right. So again, if you take a look at the banks, uh, banks are comprised of borrowers, and they're comprised of people who will lend money to the bank, i.e. depositors. Yeah. In this case, there's not much spread between what somebody can get uh, in, in terms of their interest rates, nor is there much of a difference when, with, with what you can get in terms of a mortgage. So that net interest spread is where the bank makes money. That's tough on all banks nowadays, but we look at who's going to recover first. Hawaii is based on tourism and also military spending. Yeah. Tourism is going to come back in due course. We don't know when. Military spending is a constant. Hawaii, and in particular First Hawaiian, is a very good uh, base for uh, a bank to operate. They're the oldest bank uh, west of the Mississippi. I know. that was amazing. I saw that in the notes. I would not. That, that's a trivia question. I would have gotten dead wrong. I would have said something in California. All right. George Young, partner and portfolio manager for Villary Funds, joining me on the phone from New Orleans. Always good to hear that accent. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.